Welcome to the Conversation of Money podcast. I am your host, Peter Komalafe. This is where we talk about money and all things personal finance, where we help you make the best financial decisions possible because money is a tool and life is for living. Today on the pod, I have a brilliant guest put onto me by someone else that I know um, in the banking sector and the Instagram kind of blew me away. Really, really fun Instagram and actually from the industry too, which is one of those things that I, I kind of welcome because there's not too many financial advisors in the social media space. So it's nice to know that there's someone else who's creating really, really good content out there. But without further ado, I'm going to bring on my guest, uh, Joe. Welcome, mate. And thank you for being here on the show. Likewise. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Cool. So I haven't done you any justice by introducing you in the way that I have. <laughs> do you mind <laughs> giving people an overview of you, what you do, and then we'll get into kind of your path through financial services as well. Yeah, of course. So my name's Joe. So I, um, it's my company called Family Wealth 101, and I help British expats predominantly with savings, financial planning. You mentioned it yourself, sort of longer term lifetime planning. And I, I suppose what makes me different, if you like, to a lot of other financial advisors is I'm very um, open and I post a lot of content on social media. Um, I started creating content about five years ago and it really just came off the back of, I've always been a massive fan and believer of if you cannot explain something to an eight-year-old, you don't really understand it yourself. And it's Mm -hmm. one of my massive bugbears about our industry is that it's full of jargon, it's full of noise, it's full of BS. And in my opinion, and you don't win many friends when I say this, it's built that <laughs> way to ultimately keep the consumer at arm's reach. And make people yeah. like us sound a lot more intelligent and more important than we actually are. When yeah. in reality, for a lot of people, if you follow a few simple steps, you can get where you need to be or at least get the foundations right before you need to employ someone like myself. Mm-hmm. And this is the message that I sort of, I try and get across. Um, I try and take all the jargon, all the noise and everything out of it and just break it down into plain English. I'm also not frightened of laughing at myself. And I think that's what resonates with a lot of people and where sort of a lot of my following has come from on social media is that I'm not this stuffy, typical 50-year-old, oh, I'm balding, but 50 You're not bald. 50. Whoa, 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 <laughs> no, no, whoa, whoa, no, whoa, I'm whoa. not 50. No, no, I'm not 50. I was going to say. Like... Typical financial <laughs> man. No, 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 no. Mid, mid to late 30s, I, I, I like to say. Okay, um, that, that's better. That's better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, <laughs> but again, I mean, like, the, the, tradi- the typical financial man is some 50, yeah. Yeah, some 50-year-old guy in a stuffy suit who's talking down to people and – that doesn't resonate with a lot of people. So look, me, I'm just a normal bloke and I'm very open. I share a lot of my own life experiences. I talk about my family. I talk about sort of some of the struggles I've had. I've not always been great with money. I talk, I'm quite open about that on the silly mistakes I made in my 20s when I moved to Abu Dhabi, started earning more money than I can imagine and just bumped it all up the wall, basically, for quite a few years. Um, and I had quite a harsh reality in 2016 when my wife and I were going through IVF, which is a very, very expensive gain out there because there's no NHS, there's no social security, there's no financial security, financial, um, what's the word I'm looking for? There's there's no financial support out there. So that Mm -hmm. came out of our pocket and I very quickly ran out of money at that point. And that was when I really assessed where I was at and 
initially was sort of playing the victim with that of why me, why can't we have kids? And it was during the when the Brexit vote happened, people were concerned about the jobs, people weren't investing, the markets were down. It was like, why is the market shy? Why is this? Why is this? Why is this? And well, when I really took stock and stopped that victim mentality and sat back and worked out, no, Joe, you've been here for six years, you've earned this amount of money, you've spent this amount of money, you're in a house, that, a massive house you don't need with its own private pool, you've got two flash cars on the drive, you're flying business class everywhere, you're going out brunching every Friday, Saturday. It, it was only at that point then that I really took stock and I suppose really started practicing what I preach. And that was sort of also when the content started as well. There, mm -hmm. there is so much that you've touched on right there and there's so much I want to ask you. Okay. But I think I'll move on to some of the, the financial structures in terms of like how, how you post on social media a little bit later on. I really yep. want to stay on what you just mentioned there. I see definitely as a theme uh, on social media, um, and this is one of the things that I don't like about social media, this idea of the more money you make, the easier your life is going to be. And that's not necessarily true 100% of the time because financial principles come into play then. If you don't know how to you know, spend, you know, manage your money or spend your money responsibly, you're exactly the same as someone who's broke earning very little. But you just mentioned there the whole victim mentality and that self-realization. How difficult was that for you to, to navigate? Oh, it was hard. Um, and well, I, so to put it in perspective, so I come from a very traditional working class background. My dad's a market trader, sells second-hand bric-a-brac on Sheffield Market. My mum bounced around various office jobs, working for the NHS, schools, the local council, before she unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago. So I was brought up to to value and my dad's and I'm, I'm from yorkshire as well right my dad is a typical yorkshireman he squeaks when he walks like he's the tightest man on the planet and he knows the value of a quid like that's my dad mm -hmm. um, i was 18 year old before my dad had a bank account like that's how old school my dad is and so i was brought up to you don't buy anything unless you can afford it which was all good and well but i then moved to abu dhabi when i was 22 so i started my career in banking with what was Lloyd's TSB um, mm -hmm. as a cashier, then worked my way through to an account manager, mm -hmm. account manager, branch manager. I then moved to Abu Dhabi when I was 22, and then overnight started earning more money than I can I could ever imagine, and earning it tax free, and also mm -hmm. in a in a commission only job as well. So I wasn't paid a salary, and for me mm -hmm. it was like this light bulb moment. It was like, yeah, hang yeah. on. So if I work harder than him, if I come in the office half hour earlier than her every single day and leave half hour later every single day i get six days for their five is how i sort of works things and i've always been a yep. numbers man so for me it just became this game and i started earning ridiculous amounts of money but also i then started spending ridiculous amounts of money and i got what were you doing out there what were you doing at 22 there um in fact in financial services so when I moved out there initially, I was like a business development manager for one of the leading financial advisors there before mm -hmm. I then stepped up and became an advisor myself. Mm -hmm. um, so it was direct commission on the deals of the clients yeah. that we brought in. But yeah. I knew all my numbers inside out. So I knew how many calls I needed to make to book a meeting, how many meetings I needed to book to get a bum on a seat, how many bums on a seat to get a client. I know what my average deal size was. So I went down this very dangerous route of stop looking at things as monetary value but mm -hmm. as a client 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I were looking at expensive things as that's only an extra client. That's mm-hmm, two mm-hmm. extra clients. So I were going into I were spending money with a view of, oh, I've got to do is work a little bit harder next week, or maybe I'll work on Friday next week and just make that back, which was all good and well when I were earning all this money and my bank account was still increasing every month. But like I said, my wife and I, we got married in 2014, found out, didn't, we tried for kids straight away, nothing happened. We both got tested, found out we couldn't have kids naturally. And also at the same time, we changed firms, didn't get paid at this new company for six months. It wasn't what I expected. Excuse me. The market was down um, it, during the Brexit vote. So there are all these things going off. Cost of living had increased overnight by 33% yeah. because the pound just completely yeah. tanked. Yeah, tanked and, I was, yeah. and I was paid in sterling. So mm-hmm. overnight, my rent went up by a third. Overnight, my, my the groceries, everything went up by a third, like, mm-hmm. like that. So I essentially got a 33% pay cut overnight as we're going through IVF. And it, it took us five rounds of IVF before we were blessed with my twin boys, which was wow. one of the worst experiences of my life. Um, but again, at that point, it's like when you're talking like fifteen thousand pounds per round of IVF, it's a very expensive game as well, and I very yeah. quickly ran out of money. So like yeah. initially, it was very much why can't we have kids? It was why is the market down? Why is this new company not what I expected? Um, and that went on for some time, to be fair. And it was only like I said when I really sort of took stock and worked out literally. Every bit of pen, every penny that I'd earned since I moved to Abu Dhabi. Then I worked out what savings I'd got left. Then natural maths is I worked out how much money I'd spent, and it was a massive eye opener for me. Mm. And that was sort of the day that, for me, I, I took responsibility of it, which I think is the first thing what a lot of people need to do. You need to take responsibility yeah. where you're at, because and this triggers a lot of people when I say this. But look. If you're in your late 20s, your 30s, your 40s, your 50s, and you are not in the position you want to be in in life, whether that be your fitness, whether that be your career, whether that be your financial financial goals, that is down to the decisions you have made until that point. So, again, we all all love the same self-made millionaire, but a lot of the times you're also if you're not where you want to be, you're self-made from the decisions yeah. you've made until that point. That is so true. That's so true. Um, yeah. But unfortunately, that that does trigger a lot of people because it's a lot easier to point the finger and say, no, 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 no I'm in this position because of the government, yeah. because of COVID, because of Brexit, yeah. because of the 2008 financial crash, which people yeah. still blame things on, which yeah. blows my mind. It's like, that was a long, that was almost 20 years ago now. Like, that was yeah. 15 years back. And... But for me, the, the problem with that is you're giving away that power. Like, there's something very empowering about holding your hands up and going, I messed up. I, I, I messed up. Because when you do that, you take that control back. And that's what I fortunately managed to do um, at quite a young, at quite a young age, my, my late 20s, mid to late 20s. And at that point, then just drew a line in the sand and said, look, what can I change? What can I affect moving forward? And for me, that was when I started doing a budget. That was when I started paying myself first, i.e. saving and then spending what's left. 
not spend yeah. it and then saving whatever yeah, yeah, yeah. month, which yeah. is what I would do until that point. Yeah, yeah, um, being intentional. And that's the exactly. most important thing within it. You mentioned something earlier, which has been so true for me as well, in the fact that people just assume because you work in the financial services industry, you know all this stuff and you apply it into your own personal finances. <laughs> like you, I didn't apply it any of the stuff for a very long time then i started to think about things and i was like what am i doing and then in that realization it's kind of i do exactly the same thing okay right so i'm getting i'm working this hard i'm earning this amount of money i need to start putting money aside first as opposed to spending then saving what might be left and for me i rarely had anything left because i'm such an impulsive spender but you're right it's taking ownership and being able to i guess have that the courage to be like okay this clearly isn't working I need yeah. to change this. This is really, really important. And I don't. I think now with social media, I think we're coming to this point of maybe a little bit of self-awareness and awakening. People are very much more um, acutely aware that they need to take responsibility. But I still think it's a hard, it's a difficult journey to get to that point of self-awareness. It's one thing being aware, but it's another thing doing something about it. And, the, and this is something, I, again, I spoke about recently, that, look, you can have all the knowledge in the world. I, I know a guy that can recite any line from any self-help book. <laughs> but his life never changes. And he still moans about the same stuff he was moaning about 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Like, what, what's the point in reading it? What's the point in having all this knowledge if you're not going to put any of it into action? It's like having that knowledge and not doing anything about it is the same as not having the knowledge. Same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's the most important th- thing for me is just take action. Like no matter how small that is, no matter what that is, just whatever your goals are, whatever it is you want to achieve, do something small every single day to help you achieve that. Um, yeah. And for me personally, like, my health and fitness was a massive part of that. So in 2019, to put in perspective, I'm five foot nine. In 2019, I weighed 120 kilos. I was wow. massively overweight. And again, I suppose it was another sort of rocky up the arse moment, like with it took me, me and my wife going through IVF and running out of money before I took my financial house in order. It took my mum getting diagnosed with terminal cancer and a doctor saying to her, you're going to die in the next two years. And it took that before I sort of took stock and worked out that she's had her choice taken away from her. I don't want to waste mine. I want to see my kids grow up. And that was when I really then started getting into a routine with my health and fitness, which is now, for me, paramount to everything that I do. Because without my health, I've got nothing. If I'm not a healthy, better version of myself, it's, it's the old analogy, isn't it? You put your own, and you're on an airplane, put your own mask on before your kids. Like, yeah. Yeah. Selfish as it sounds, you need to take care of yourself first in order to give to others. Um, yeah. And and when I started doing that, everything got better. My mental health got better. My finances got better. My lifestyle got better. I felt healthier. I felt better about myself. I got more confidence. Um, but that you, all you started in small thing. steps. Small steps, yeah. You have an interesting theory that you posted about the other day around like looking after your health and how that translates into your finances. Do you mind speaking a little bit about that? Because I find it quite interesting um, the way you kind of positioned it. Yeah, so for me, so your, your health, fitness, well-being and finance, finances are all linked because if your health is out of whack, 
that tells me to again, like I was as bad as for that with that as well, that you've not really got a routine, you've not really got a structure in place, which directly correlates to your finances. Likewise, if you've mm-hmm. got financial, if you're in, if you're in financial difficulties, that causes a. We've all stressed about money, like yeah, worrying about there is no bigger stress than worrying about money. That then directly affects your health and your well-being. So I find sort of health, physical health, mental health, and money directly correlated. And like I said, for me, it's something that you need to take a conscious look at and make sure that all three are in or moving in the right direction. And yeah. a lot of that for me is being having a structure to it and being you know, yeah. use, use the word self earlier. It's intentional. It's having the yeah. intention to to do what you know. People know what they need to do. Like people know what they need to eat in order to not be morbidly obese. I knew that all through my twenties. Yeah, I didn't do it. I just put it off. I'll worry about it tomorrow. I'll worry about it tomorrow. I'll worry about it tomorrow. I'll go on another brunch this weekend. I just didn't do it. And for me, it was sort of, I suppose, facing my own mortality with my mother that made me start taking that seriously. Um, so, yeah. So what what does your structure at the moment look like in terms of, you know, your your fitness regime because looking at your instagram you 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 pretty built. you look really kind of like built and tongue and stuff what does that actually look like for you and how do you actually then feed that into your into your day-to-day work because i think just before we i think you mentioned this earlier you don't do anything that you don't feel you want to do and i think yeah. in this in this society where now everything's about work-life balance that's what people are aiming for but what mm-hmm. does that look like in relation to your fitness and then your day-to-day day-to-day work so a lot of people would look at my sort of finish regime and think it's quite obsessive um so i i've just well i've had two weeks ago i just i had a um fitness style photo shoot a couple of weeks ago first i saw that yeah yeah and it was it was amazing like i dieted down for 20 weeks for it i got into in an insane shape but it was sort of it was six months of sacrifice it was six months of being in pain, it was six months of being tired, it was six months of being hungry, it was six months of aching, having low energy, which sounds horrendous to a lot of people. But <laughs> weirdly, it was, I, I've never felt as alive. And it, for me, it was just having that goal and having something to aim for and knowing that on this day, I need to take my shirt off in front of, ex- I think there were 10 people there. Uh, like my coaches came down, a few friends came down with me, obviously the photographer, his team. And I was like, I need to take my shirt off for all these people. Like that for me was the external pressure that I needed and the internal pressure as well. And like, I want to see how far I could push it. Have I got the minerals to really do this? Mm-hmm. Um, and I've never felt more alive. Um, and that like leading up to that was very intense, but like now like coming out of the back of that. So, I mean, I've got another photo shoot booked in December, which again, I'm big. I'm big on goal planning. Like, I like to have a yeah. goal. I like to have something to aim for. So, my fitness regime now. So, I I've always naturally got up early in the morning. So, I'm up at four a.m. Um, I get up at four. So, I have a morning routine every morning. So, my morning routine is to do something for work, whether it be message client, email a client, create a bit of content, do something for work, do something for my business. Mm-hmm. I a journal. Um, so I'm a massive fan of journaling, which for me, what all journaling is, I mean, people have never done this laugh at me, especially like macho men. And I was the same a couple of years ago, but for me, all journaling is, it's, it's telling your brain where to look for. It's like a compass for the mind. 
So a journal and I sweat every single morning. So on my so I train for, I resistance weight train five days a week, which is Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. So on those days, I leave the house at five. I go for a little walk. I then go to the gym at six, train. Then I'm back, um, get the kids, get the kids ready for school, take the kids to school, and then my work day starts about quarter to nine. Mm-hmm. Um, on my rest days, I'll go for I'll do my cardio in the morning um, as well. And I, so yeah, so that's my fitness regime. I follow a quite strict meal plan. I've got a coach that just lines it all out for me. Like I don't have to think about it. I don't have to do anything. I just have to tick the boxes. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah. I'm interested to know as well, the Dubai thing, I think you, you're, to a certain extent, a little ahead of the curve because a lot of people, I think Dubai and the, and the Middle East generally, Abu Dhabi, is where everybody wants to go, tax-free status, so on and so forth. Um, how did you find that experience and what's your thoughts on, you know, the social media narratives around, uh, you know, that part of the world at the moment? Would you go back? what how do you how do you view it yeah so i lived in abu dhabi from 2010 to 2020 and we had 10 amazing years like loved the place and we only came back to we came back to the uk for family reasons so it was around the time well it just before the time my mum got diagnosed with terminal cancer my wife was getting itchy feet with the middle east because even though we lived in abu dhabi i was flying around saudi arabia in the middle east four or five days a week so she went look i'm a single parent half the week i've got two mm-hmm. one-year-old twin boys that i'm looking after myself i need more support so we were sort of like 70 80 percent right we'll go back to the uk and i'll fly back and forth and then my mum got diagnosed with cancer at that time so we took a view of look let's go back um and we'll just make it work um and so yeah, well, I mean, yeah, so that's why I came back. But we loved it. But for me, there's this big disconnect, especially if we're talking about in relation to money, okay? Because anyone you ask, anyone you ask, why did you move to the UAE? Why did you move to Abu Dhabi? Why did you move to Dubai? Why did you move to Saudi Arabia? It's always monetary reasons. It's tax-free. It's a great opportunity for a job. I'll earn more money. I'll be able to take care of my family for the rest of my days. I'll be able to retire 10 years earlier whatever it may be, okay? It's always monetary values. Yet, 60% of expats leave the Middle East in a worse financial position than when they got there. Not just broke, in a worse financial position than when they arrive. So there's there's this big disconnect somewhere. Something's going wrong. And for me, the main cause of that is your Instagram. It's keeping up with the Joneses. Mm -hmm. Because... It's such a transient place and it's such a show-off place as well where yeah, is, you're yeah. earning all this money, you're earning it tax-free, yet you can literally get whatever you want. It's an adult's playground, the Middle East. It's insane. Like Even in 2010 when I moved to Abu Dhabi, and when I moved to Abu Dhabi in 2010, I remember telling people, and this was before the F1, this was before anyone knew where Abu Dhabi was, right? I kid yeah. you not. The amount of people where I went, oh, I'm moving to Abu Dhabi, and they went, oh, is that in Wales? Right, no, <laughs> <laughs> that's Aberystwyth. <laughs> Nobody knew it, and I'd never been. I just knew it was an hour from Dubai. That's all I knew about Abu Dhabi. And when I got there, I expected like little white sandy-coloured buildings. I expected like Aladdin-type. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Arabia. I expect to see camels everywhere crossing the street in the morning on the on the on the transit to work. It was not like that at all. Mm-hmm. It was skyscrapers. It were flash buildings. It were five star hotels. And then every Friday, because the work the, the working week then was Sunday to Thursday. It's now Monday to Friday mm-hmm. in line with the Western world, but back then it was Sunday to Thursday. And every Friday, we did these things, what were called brunches. Now, bottomless brunches are quite a new thing here in the UK. We were doing them in 2010 in a strict Muslim country where, where it's illegal to drink, right? Every Friday, every British expat would go to one of five or six different places. Um, I remember they were Trader Vic's, they were Victor's, there were a few other sort of British-style pubs. And it would all you can eat, all you can drink, 12 while 4, by about 7 p.m., trying to get any sense out of any Brit on a Friday in Abu Dhabi, you'd be like pulling teeth. Honestly, it was yeah. insane. But it's, it's one, of, one of these weird places where it was never a problem until it were a problem. So everyone knew you did it. Everyone did it. But if you stumbled out of one of these five-star hotels and walked into a police car, then it's a problem. Then you're, then spending, a problem. A, then you're spending a week yeah. inside, you're getting a free air yeah. and you're getting a jumpsuit. <laughs> Um, yeah. So yeah, it's, 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 it's interesting because like the Middle East and Dubai, it's I see it so much across social media now because it is, it is totally glamorized. I mean, oh my god, I've been going there for eight years, nine years. We've got friends out there now, and we will we do want to move out there. But I think you're right. A lot of it is for monetary reasons. And one of the analysis that I've seen on social media, I mean, there was a there was a TikTok I saw the other the other week, a couple of months ago now actually. So on some young guy talking about the fact that really to enjoy Dubai, to live the life in Dubai, you need to be on like fifty thousand pounds a month. And I'm just like, all of this stuff is being built up and spoken about. And I'm just like, where is this coming from? It's like I don't understand it. And I think people miss the most important thing. It's if you're gonna go out there, why are you going out there? Yes, all right, you might be able to make more money, but a lot of the fun the fundamentals around basics still up. I would argue maybe even more important go out there earn money tax free earn a load of money but if you can't manage it it's much you're more just important. gonna be just as bad yeah and um, because there's a lot of things what we take for granted in this country nhs right mm-hmm. you can bash it all you want right there isn't many other countries that have got a free quote unquote health service like we have okay nhs national insurance Again, you pay your national insurance automatically. You don't even think about it, but that builds up your state pension, okay? Mm-hmm. Guess what happens when you become an expat, okay? That country you're in, the UAE, there is no free healthcare. You need health insurance. Now, look, granted, most employers will provide it, but the but the level of cover most employers will give you is horrendous. So if you want proper health insurance, you're paying for that, okay? You're not paying tax. You're earning more money. But at the same time, you're not paying your national insurance. So you're not building up your state pension contributions. So unless you voluntarily do that, that's 10 years that you're not building up your state pension. And now in the UK as well, with auto enrollment, you're automatically paying into a works pension as well, nine times out of the time, nine times out of 10. There's no pensions in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. There there is no pensions over there. So basically, and the way I see this, Again, I try and reframe it is that you are paid a premium because some of those things that used to be taken care of you for you, you now need to mm-hmm. take care of that for yourself. Yeah. But again, it's very easy that it's lifestyle creep, isn't it? And I call it the expat trap. 
that yeah. you, you were quite comfortable when you're earning this, but the second you earn this, your lifestyle creeps up to it. And the second 100%. you earn this, your lifestyle creeps up again. So I try and yeah. say to people, look, keep used, get used to living to a certain lifestyle. And when you get that pay rise, the first thing that you increase is your savings, your investments, and your plans for mm-hmm. the future. Then the lifestyle comes after. Yeah. Great point. And I think that's something that people, I don't know, I, I talk about this till I'm blue in the face. I, I feel as though whilst all of that makes sense and most people will agree, yeah, 100%, logical. A part of me feels as though people don't necessarily really understand the importance of that statement right there until something happens to give them an epiphany, a realisation, that hang on a second. And unfortunately, a lot of the time, it's a little too late because you're never going to gain back the time that you've lost by not having that epiphany a little bit earlier on. And it's it's always something that I feel people, it's difficult to get people to realise early and, and nudge them to actually take action and take responsibility. I completely agree. And it's like anything. If you want to be... Su- I actually wrote a post on this earlier, so I can quote it word for word. But if you want to be successful in any part of your life, that takes short-term sacrifice for long-term gain. And the longer you can put that gain off for the more successful you're going to be. It's like going to the gym. If you eat chicken and broccoli and go to the gym five times in a week, your body's not going to change. If you do that, if you stick to a strict fitness regime and eat right for a year, your body will change. If you do it for four years, your body will change dramatically. If you do it for 10 years, you'll be a different person, okay? Mm. It's same with a career. You're not going to, if you want to be a lawyer, okay, you're not going to be the best lawyer in the world in three months' time. You're not going to be the best lawyer in a year's time, in two years' time, in five years' time. It takes time to train, to learn the industry, to learn how it works. Exactly the same with building wealth, with saving, with investing. The longer you do it for, the more benefit you get from compound returns. Um, But again, a a lot of people, you say, struggle to sort of see that. So for me, it's about setting yourself a big lofty goal and then funneling it down to today and taking small steps of what do I need to do today, this week, this month, in order to get me closer to that goal and not further away. And everything you just said there, I'm 100% on board with you because that is financial advisor speak. Sit down with client, what is it all about? What's your goal? Where do you wanna be? Backtrack to where we are right now. What are the steps that need to be taken to get you to that goal in the future? 100 percent it makes sense and it's and it's logical you've mentioned the whole instant gratification i think that is probably one of the biggest challenges and the biggest threats that a lot of people feel as a byproduct of social media now because yeah you know you can go to dubai and one thing that drives me nuts is the amount of traders that will go to dubai (laughs) take a picture in a bentley or lamborghini and it's like this is my lambo this is my bentley and people believe it and i'm like no come on no. like seriously and i think there is there's that short-sightedness of, often when we have these kind of conversations that people just don't they don't understand and they think i saw an interesting ad the other day for one of these traded one of these trading courses i don't know if you've ever read the small print of them i, I don't listen they drive me nuts so much that i don't even look at them anymore right they do they do me, but the one I saw was that outlandish. I clicked on it, right? And 
right at the bottom, I kid you not, right at the bottom, there was some small print on the screen. And I had to send the link to Ryan because I couldn't see it. Ryan, who works for me, right? He blew it up and he managed to see it. And he said on the, I kid you not, he said on the bottom of this advert in minuscule print, 86 point something percent of traders lose money using this platform. So I wonder if that's a new thing, what they've now got to include is the percent who actually make and lose money. 87%, 86% of people lose yep. money. Yeah. But the thing is, they don't, it is insane. And like for any logical person looking at that, if they knew the fact up front, they'd be like, mm, okay, maybe my chances here aren't that great. But this is the clever thing that they've done on social media now. It's all psychological. And they use psychological, like psychology and psychological tricks to get you there, to anchor you, to, to really get you to the point where you believe that that statement of, I'm not going to be one of those 86%, I'm going to be the 14% that actually wins. And they use the Lamborghinis and the watches and the luxury items to really reel you into the lifestyle. And the funniest thing is I said, if anybody really pays attention to any of this stuff, a lot of the guys who own these groups don't make money from the trading. They make money from you paying a membership because you bought into this idea of this lifestyle. And that in itself perpetuates the whole the whole scam because it's not from trading. They have thousands of kids paying 40, 50 pounds a month. Yes, they can keep up the lifestyle. It's not from the trading notes, from yeah. you being a schmuck, unfortunately, yeah. and giving them 40, 50 pounds a month so that they can live their lifestyle and, and string you alongside it as well. And Dubai is kind of like the cesspit for it right now. It's just oh, mad. yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I said the exact same thing to people. I'm like, look, if he was that good, he wouldn't be trying to pitch you a course for 40 quid, for 50 quid. It'd make much more than that trading himself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 100%. I'm interested to know, how are you finding, what's your views on what's happening right now? So obviously in the UK inflation mortgage rates are going up i mean we might have a recession with the uh, bank of england pushing interest rates up even further at the moment what's your take on all of this at the at this point of view from what you're doing at the moment um i mean if we look at if we look at sort of inflation and interest rates i, I think with if you look at sort of what's gone off leading up until this point it, it was inevitable so you've had mm -hmm. central banks printing all this money for donkey's years you had COVID, which then caused a massive block in the supply chain where goods and services, for the first time on record, really, the world shut down. Like For six, nine months, companies weren't making products. They weren't providing these services. Shipping containers weren't getting sent around the world. So that naturally slowed things down. And then all of a sudden the world reopens again. Everybody wants all these goods and services. And it's natural supply and demand. If I've got 10 mm -hmm. or something, I've got a thousand people queuing up. I guess what I'm going to do. I'm going to charge them up. Price going to go up. If you want it, yeah. So for me, there, there was that. And then obviously at the back of sort of the Russia-Ukraine war with energy prices and what's gone off there, that's not helped. But it's made things a lot worse. So I think... The increase in price, increase in inflation, increased prices was inevitable. And how central banks, the only tool they've really got to tackle that is by pushing interest rates up. Yeah. So I do think it's been coming for a long time. And I think, especially my sort of age as well, we've been spoiled to a certain extent with, I mean, I started my career in financial services when I was in my late teens. 
during the 2008 crisis. Mm -hmm. So that's all I've ever known. And then, it's all ever, yeah, it's all I've ever known as an adult, well, yep. semi, semi mature adult, let's say. But that's all I've ever known growing up. Like, I didn't live through, well, I was born in the mid to late 80s, but I didn't live through the 80s when, in a real sense, where interest rates were double digits. I've, I've, never, I've yep. never known that before. So, yes, interest rates are high. Um, I mean, I read something yesterday. The Bank of England forecast that inflation will be 5% at the end of this year. So that's a good sign. Yep. It's still but, far behind where they actually need it to be, though. And the forecasts, it just changes all the time. I'm sure like a month ago, they were forecasting that by Q4, it was going to be like 2.9%. And it's like, it's a moving target. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. But what it does, it, 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 it means we have a lot of uncertainty around what's going to happen in the meantime. And that's causing havoc because for people coming off mortgages and stuff like that, or people who bought mortgaging, mortgages during the COVID um, lockdown uh, period where there was no stamp duty, if they took two-year fixed rates, their mortgages are coming up this year and yeah. they're going to go from, you know, one, two percent to what is now, what, average two-year two year fixed rate being at six percent? It's yeah. mad. It's yeah. crazy. Yeah. So I I agree with you, um, and I do think that I do think it is a temporary thing. Though I think rates will start dropping next year, and, I, and the, like always, the media makes it worse. And I, I say this all the time: like the number the number one bit of advice I give anyone is ignore the news. So again, and I, I talk about this when people start investing in the stock market and investing for the long term. What is happening today in the news is none of your business if you are investing for the longer term. Now look. I know that's easier said than done, and in particular, easier said than done when your mortgage fixed rate's coming to an end, and all of a sudden your mortgage is going to double or triple. Um, but I do think that rates will start dropping next year. Um, on the, I mean, I read an article the other day in one of the tabloids that rates are going to stay this high until 2026. I mean, I don't think that's right by a long shot. Um, but unfortunately, when the media creates this scarcity, it then affects the lenders because what that then does is it affects the, you know yourself. It affects the swap rates. The higher the swap rates, the higher the rate the lenders use. So it does have this knock-on effect, which is not good for anybody. Um, and I don't know what the answer is to that. Is it regulate the news? Which I suppose that's a whole entire <laughs> different podcast for another day. That's but, true. Um, but yeah. yeah. So I, I do think yeah. the media are to blame for a lot of the stuff that's going off, if I'm honest. Yeah. And a lot of the yeah. fear mongering. Yeah. I'm interested to know what what how have you found social media being a financial advisor? How I mean, because for me, compliance was always one of those things where I was like, I don't oh my God, I don't want to have to deal with this. So how, are you directly authorized or how 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 are you set up? No, so I'm part of a network. Um so when I started creating the content, it did cause a bit of an issue within the network. Um, I was basically told that, first of all, told you can't do it. Um, mm -hmm. And this was out when I was in the, the Middle East as well. So it was nothing to do with the UK. It was all international. Um, told you can't do it. My answer was, I'm going to do it. Um, then it was right. You need to get every video cleared by compliance. compliance. Yeah. Which I did that for a bit. 
and then they just started taking longer and longer to get back to me. So then I slowly just started putting a few videos out and it, it didn't cause any issues, let's say. So um, easier to seek forgiveness than ask permission. Permission, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, but no, when I started making them, I got a lot of flack from people in my industry. A lot of flack. Um, uh, comments like he's cheaper than his brand, he's embarrassing himself. Who does he think he is? He's showing the industry up. Um, but fortunately, I had some good guys in my corner who I, mentors I used to go to for advice. And one of my mentors in particular, a very good friend of mine, Spencer Lodge, um, he used to say to me, his famous quote is, your opinion of me is none of my business. Mm-hmm. And when I got my head around that, my content got started getting a lot better because, and it sounds crazy when I say it out loud, that I was holding myself back and not putting the content out that I wanted to put out in fear of what other people in my industry thought of it. Yeah. Well, yeah. When in reality, they're the only people that are never going to buy from me. Yeah. So why do I care what they think? Yeah. Uh, but that's to be honest, I felt exactly the same. I felt exactly the same. It's like, I'm say, I'm talking about this in the way that I talk about it. And I try to be as open and as conversational as possible. And just, yeah, I try to use expertise and, and, and my opinion, but I always, it always comes from a good place. And I was always worried of like, oh, you know, th- they're not going to like the fact that I'm talking about this. They're going to say, I shouldn't talk about this. I can't talk about this. Well, what, how you phrase that, that's not compliant and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, at the end of the day, the more we can empower people to understand what we're talking about, ironically, it leads potentially to more business because people don't feel as though you're this alien that they can't approach and they have nothing in common with. I mean, one of when I was advising, someone used to use this phrase, which is so, so true. She goes, at the end of the day, we deal with people, but we also deal with money and the people come first. So if, as yeah. long as you can connect with people, well, actually, the money side of things is, is secondary. It, it, it's just a secondary factor because you connect with the people first. And that's always stuck with me. And I yeah. think maybe a, something that our industry hasn't quite fully come to appreciate just yet, that it is about the people. It's not necessarily about, you know, the products and the services that you provide and how compliantly you can explain it. No, it's it's the people that matters. And if you can connect with the person, the battle's pretty much won, really. Yeah, and a lot of the feedback I get when I meet with someone for the first time, it's it's like the, a lot of the time they say, I feel like I already know you because I'm very open on social media. I talk about my family, like the amount of people I know that know my kids' names before I've ever spoke to them mm-hmm. just because they watch my videos and they see my content and they know that what my passions are. They know that I'm into the gym. They know that I'm massive into keeping fit and keeping healthy. They know what I do at the weekends. And so... Again, I, I, I said people do buy from people, and I try. Like I said, I'm an open book with it, um, and I just try and be as honest as possible as well with my views and my opinions. I don't give direct advice on Instagram, obviously. Yeah, of course. But it's, yeah. it's just again scenarios of look taking. Like I said, a lot of finance, finance uh, jargon for finance talk um that usually happens in the back boardrooms and just breaking that down is plain english like what does yeah. this actually mean um and i like using a lot of analogies as well just to again because that's the way my brain works i'm very visual in how i learn things mm-hmm. so i try and make the the videos as visual as possible as representative as possible of that 
Um, and look, don't get me wrong, I probably talk about five things, but I've created 2,000 videos around them five things, and it's just explaining it a different way. And yep. someone might watch yep. 10 of those videos before they see the 11th one and go, that one made sense. That one makes clicks. sense, yeah. Yeah. Yep, 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 yeah, 100%. Um, Cool. Right. So, how do people find you? And by the way, guys, you should definitely go check out. It's <laughs> pretty awesome. To be honest, mate, I wish my Instagram was a little bit more like yours. And I, I'm still kind of working out my whole. It's a, it's a, it's an evolving thing, isn't it? At the end of the day, yeah. you start off yeah. doing one thing, then you move into something else, and it's an evolving thing. But your Instagram is very, very, very engaging. And I love the Thank style you. of the way you shoot the content and and everything. And to think that you're in the finance industry, I wouldn't have thought that. And, and rack at halifax was like you check this guy out and i've looked at it and i was like he's a financial advisor as well i was like okay cool we definitely need to speak so how do people yeah. find you so easiest way so on instagram so it's joe j-o-e underscore family wealth 101 brilliant i will look um to put all of the links in the show notes on apple spotify all of the good podcast outlets but on YouTube as well, if you're watching this here, I'll also put the links down in the description as well. Go follow the content. You've got a YouTube channel as well, right, Joe? I do. Um, it's, yeah, I, I do. We put the videos out there. But yeah, so it's, it's um, Family Wealth 101 on YouTube. We're also, I'm also on LinkedIn as well. So just search Joe Woodhouse Family Wealth 101 if you want to find me on LinkedIn. Brilliant. Okay, cool. So guys, there you go. I hope you found this really, really interesting. It isn't the typical kind of like conversation that we normally have, but this one, it brings another person's perspective in. And we've covered quite a broad range of kind of like things here and themes here. And I'm sure that there will be some nugget focus, um, which will hopefully empower you on your week this week or give you a little something to think about to maybe perhaps talk about implementing. The biggest thing for me that I've taken away is this resonating message around taking ownership and having intention. Um, we often miss that. And when I talk about my personal journey, as you guys will know, for the longest time, I didn't take any ownership and I didn't have any tangible intention to change things. And the minute I had that tangible intention and I took ownership. That's where you start, or at least I started to make really big strides in progress toward where I wanted to be. And a lot of the time, age is a factor that means that with age comes wisdom. <laughs> um, but the idea behind this is I'm 43. Okay, I've made a ton of mistakes that you don't have to make. And so by having these conversations, hopefully you have the epiphanies that I had way, way later in life, a little bit earlier, so you don't have to make those same mistakes. Um, but I appreciate every single one of you for being here and tuning in uh, this Monday uh, morning uh, to the podcast. Like I said, I'm in Dubai right now. I'm doing a little bit of work and stuff. Um, I will catch you next week. Enjoy your weeks, whatever it is that you decide to do. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>